Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. You've got questions, we've got answers. From the boardroom to the bedroom, car lines to college, single, married, or single again, we're bringing real answers to help you live and love your grit and grace life. Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. I'm Darlene Brock. And what's up, friends? I'm Julie Bender. So, Julie, you know that we check every episode what the internet has to say about whatever subject we're dealing with or kind of a version of the subject we're dealing with. I know. So I'm so curious if we're talking about humanity today, what did we put in the Google box to cull our hilarious internet facts? Yeah, it was actually a little bit of a stretch. (laughs) Okay, this should be interesting. All right. So here's a little bit about a humanity that might um, be interesting to you. Harvard might be hard to get into with 4.5% admittance rate. They didn't take me. Huh? They didn't take me. They didn't take you? Harvard didn't take you? I didn't actually try, but (laughs) but they didn't take me. Okay, wait a minute. This gets even harder. Do you know that only 2.6% of Walmart applicants are accepted? No, I would never have guessed such a risk. Harder to get into Walmart than Harvard. Okay, well, that actually makes me feel better, I it guess. It should. I don't know. I don't it know. should. This is hilarious. A lifetime Cleveland Browns fan and season ticket holder requested in his obituary for, quote, six Cleveland Browns pallbearers at his funeral. Why? Well, so the Browns could let him down one last time, he said. <laughs> That's commitment right there. Yeah, I guess the Browns have not done well. I don't I'm curious, know. did they fulfill his dying wish? They should have. The internet needed to give me more information. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, in 2012, a man wore 60 shirts and nine pair of jeans on an 11 and a half hour flight from China to Africa because he didn't want to pay the extra baggage fee. Okay, so I was reading this and now I'm like fully processing. He wore them all on his body at exactly. one time. Yeah. Would you like to sit next to him? (laughs) That is insane. And I kind of wish I had an image right now. (laughs) I know. So good. According to a 2014 survey by a Christian retailer, Lifeway, in Nashville, 7% of Christian Americans pray for a parking spot. That might be over-spiritualizing. I don't know. I've done it, though. Yeah, I've actually prayed for forgiveness when I've cut somebody (laughs) off because I wanted that perfect spot what do you think i wonder if that counts in their survey (laughs) results survey says yeah maybe it may feel a lot longer in the moment but the average person spends two weeks of their life sitting at traffic lights that sounds very depressing do you sit there and go okay which lights next oh i think everyone right now could imagine in their mind that one light that always takes forever Uh like everyone has one on their regular route that they just pray that they're not getting. Why aren't we praying for the for the green lights? <laughs> I have actually prayed for green lights on school mornings when we're going yeah. too late. Please, Lord, yeah, honor I'm my ready laziness. Late. I couldn't get out the door. We're late for school. Mm-hmm. Make that light green. All right. This one's interesting. Between 90 and 95% of all human sensory perceptions are visual stimuli. Interesting. Yeah. We respond to what we see. The truth is that humans do many things that set us each apart from one another. We're unique in how we handle life and and unique in how we look, too. Sometimes, though, that ends up bringing division. Yeah, sadly enough. And, you know, as women of strength, we don't want to avoid the cultural issues of the day, but we 
you know, we seek to build bridges to gain understanding. And probably there's nothing more acute in today's world than the tension that exists when dealing with race. Mm. We brought a guest this week who is a writer for Grit and Grace Life and has written several things that are incredibly poignant, both about her life experience on this subject and her life experience in general. So we're really excited that Allison McCormick has chosen to join us today to discuss this challenging subject. So Allison, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Julie. We are so excited to have you. Um, before we get started, can you just kind of maybe introduce yourself a little to our audience? Tell us maybe where you live and who you live with. Sure. Well, I live in the beautiful state of Oregon in a little tiny town called Bend, Ooh. and we're right in the center of the state. Uh, I've been married to my husband for 42 years. His name is Mac, and we have a 13-year-old fur baby <laughs> named Titus. Ah. <laughs> uh... Tell us a little bit about your cultural background and maybe that of your husband's as well, since I know we're going to get into a conversation about culture and race, just so we can kind of set the stage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, my parents were married uh, in 1944, and both were raised in the South. My father uh, was African-American and Chinese, and my mother was French Creole. Well, at least that's what we thought she was until she passed away in 1987. And then Julie, at that time, we learned that she was actually white. Her mother was English and her father was German. But you know, in 1940s, interracial marriages were not accepted. So we really believe that our mother hid her race to protect our father. So it's been quite a little journey. And um, just discovering this has been really quite an awakening for our family. My husband was raised by a single mom. And he's one of 10 children. Uh, he's the oldest boy. And uh, his mother is just an amazing, was an amazing woman. Uh, and he's African-American. Now, I'm just going to step in here and go, all right, you grew up biracial, but a different, bi you thought it was a different biracial than it was. Um, and, you know, I'm, I will occasionally deviate from some of our questions because I'd like to know, Allison, what, what was that like? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you asked that question. Um, when I grew up, I went to a predominantly African-American uh, high school. Uh, I will say in elementary school and junior high school, it never really presented a problem. Um, I just kind of blended in with some of the other kids. There were other biracial children that were there. But I really noticed it in high school. And in high school, I, I felt, and I've said this before, I didn't feel I was white enough to be white. And I wasn't black enough to be black. And I was caught in this mix of trying to figure out kind of where I really did fit in. Um, I was super academic, um, somewhat athletic. And so I, I kind of bridged those two divides. But I still never saw anyone that looked like me until there was a young um, girl that ended up coming to my school and she was also biracial and we became best friends. So I think through elementary, junior high, again, I don't believe it was as big a problem until I hit high school. And then during my high school years, it was a challenge. Um, and from that point on into young adulthood, I really, into college years, I was surrounded uh, by an African-American community that was extremely supportive. 
and a white community that was extremely supportive. But it was always kind of this, this pull for me because I, again, didn't quite know where I fit in. And my parents came from an era that they didn't talk much about history and background. We, we know now why, because what they were actually doing was hiding a lot of what their history was. So I think that added to some of the complexity of that childhood. So maybe you said this, or maybe my mom brain <laughs> newly getting back into, you know, working again. Did I catch, how old were you when you discovered about your mom's actual history? Yeah, my, uh, my mother died in 1987. And when my mother died, uh, I was in my 20s. And at that time, okay. what was said to us was, um, you know, your mother was a white woman. And so we were like, well, yeah. But we didn't take it, Julie, to mean exactly what was said. And honestly, we didn't get this confirmed until um, my husband did one of the DNA ancestry tests. And he started really delving into our ancestry and lo and behold, found my history going back for centuries. I mean, it's a long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and then uncovered all of this. And lo and behold, as we started uncovering more and talking to people, that's when we found out. So I... I was in my 30s, 40s, when actually this was uncovered. You know, I react so almost vitriolic into, in my heart because I hate division, hate it. I hate it for any reason. But today's, in these days, and you know, Julie knows, I have a biracial grandson. I hate it for him because he shouldn't have to choose. He shouldn't have to decide where he belongs. You should never have had to decide where you belong because we are all created by God beautifully, amazingly, wonderfully. But I know my reaction doesn't answer today's problem. Mm -hmm. My, you know, I wanna fight back, I wanna beat people up, I wanna say quit acting this way. But the reality, I think, today is even stronger than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in the division. And I know recently you wrote an article at Grit and Grace Life about some of the emotions that your husband has encountered recently or he has dealt with. Can you share a little bit about that from his perspective, being a black man in America today? Yeah, sure. And I think the best way to do that uh, just was a, a recent um, event that happened. Um, and just to give a little bit of background so that maybe our listeners can understand a little bit about this man. Um, you know, my husband, Mac, has lived and worked and traveled overseas extensively. And really, he just has a reputation in town of being kind of the, he speaks to everybody. I, I don't think the man really knows a stranger. It's just in his DNA, uh, he's extremely friendly. So, you know, traveling and, and interacting with new people really doesn't phase him. So kind of with that background, let me just share kind of a recent event that happened. So um, we were going on vacation and we traveled from Central Oregon to Northern California. And our goal was to you know visit friends and family. And also he has a 82 year old sister that was just recently married. So we were going to celebrate her marriage. And as we returned home, we were sitting at breakfast one morning 
And he looked over at me and he says, you know, um, when I'm here in them, I feel safe. And he went on to explain that I feel safe because I know the heart of this town. I know uh, I'm not blind to the fact that, yes, racism is alive and well here. Um, but I know the heart of this town. And he, he went on to say, but, you know, as I move further and further away um, from home and from understanding kind of the framework and the landscape, my radars go up and I really become conscious. So you have to understand there was a period of time, and it's been a number of years ago, my husband went through an intersection in our little town. And um, he came through the intersection. He drove probably about six blocks. And as he was coming up our street to come home, a police officer pulled him over. And the police officer sat in the car for an extended period of time and finally got out of his car, came up to the window, asked him to go down the window. And being my husband, who never knows a stranger, you know, he started talking to this police officer. And he says, officer, you know what's going on? He says, the only thing this officer said to him is, whose car is this? Now you have to understand, my husband is a car fan. So he has an older Porsche Cayenne. And he says, well, officer, this car is mine. And he said, driver's, driver's license and registration, took them both, said nothing else, went back to his car. He came back later after he had run through all of the information and said, well, you cut me off. Don't do it again. And went back to his car. So my husband being the man he is and knowing, as I said, some of the town, he actually talked to some of the police officers and lo and behold, this officer was actually a highway patrolman. So he wasn't a part of the town. He wasn't a part of the heart of this town. Our, our police officers have gone through sensitivity training. So many of them would not respond the way that this officer did. But nevertheless, even in our little town, he has had to deal with Allison, I, I'm hearing your story and I'm imagining what it must have been like for you as he came home and relayed that to you. And certainly I can't begin to really feel it the way you would and absolutely wouldn't feel it the way that he did. You know, I mean, there's no secret here. It's obvious that Darlene and I are two white women. And so our experience is markedly different and we're not going to ignore or deny that. And so you know, from our perspective, in the the news today, everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, it seems as though tension, you know, racial tension specifically, has worsened. Would you agree with that from your perspective as well? There is much more a willingness to accept overt racism, um, acts of violence and hate, and it just seems to be much more socially acceptable. Um, maybe it's just our world is becoming more comfortable with allowing hatred to reign. You know, I wonder if this is just a mirror in this area of the division and animosity between humanity. It's like when people feel the liberty to demean others, to make themselves superior, what, whatever, when that happens in the broad stroke of humanity, and I think human beings, the, the value of humanity has been diminished. That to me leads to all of the ugly things that exist get, that get uglier. They get uglier and uglier. And I feel like that's part of what's gone on in this conversation. So then I go, 
what do we do about it? I mean, we're all Christian women. We care about our faith, and we believe with all our hearts that God created us equally, wonderfully, beautifully. He just painted us different, and that's magnificent. But the reality is this exists. So how how do we deal with it? What do we do? What do we say? What What would you offer to us in this conversation? It kind of comes down to this fundamental belief. You hit the, the nail on the head that you know we are all created in his image. We are created and designed by God. Um, and so I think that that is really where the fundamental change is going to happen. It's almost I mean, as if when we stop thinking about creation kind of from our head, then we allow our concern about creation to come from our hearts, that's when we're going to start seeing the shift. And I think what God is doing is he's given us this perfect example. You know, when he allowed his son to be sacrificed on a cross to demonstrate this absolutely unconditional, relentless, um, just amazing love for us, he said that as an example. That redemptive act was really the best example that we have. And so I, I kind of feel that there's three different steps that we as, as women, as believing women can actually take. And I think the first one of those is that we really need to be courageous and we need to be courageous enough to really face the past. We have a past, a historical past of injustice, um, of, of slavery, of racism. We have that past and we as individuals have to come to grips that yes, there is a past. And when we see injustice, we need to actually be willing to do something, not just see it, but take this next step of really being willing to confront it. And I'm not saying that we have to pick it and do all of those types of things. We don't have to be um, violent in our response, but what we can be is we can be sensitive. So again, if we see injustice, we need to act. If we see someone that is belittling or um, speaking ill, stand up and have the courage to say, you know, I don't want to hear that or to speak into the lies that are being perpetrated. We need to educate ourselves and we need to educate others. And we really need to be willing to have those very difficult conversations. Um, I also think that we need to be willing to cross that color divide, you know, form friendships and ask questions and really seek to understand. And then finally, I, I think that we need to be mindful and mindful enough to evaluate our own personal beliefs. We have to check our hearts. It goes back to what my husband said about being more comfortable in then, even with that experience with that police officer, he is more comfortable here because he knows the heart of this community. And so we have to be willing to check our own hearts and really be willing to then do the hard work of recognizing if there's bias, we need to ask for forgiveness. And if there's ignorance, we need to educate ourselves. Um, I think it's just taking a few minutes and really checking in, do I need to do some more work, just even in my own personal attitude? Um, yeah, I, I just think that God's example of this redemptive kind of relentless love for us is just something that we need to be practicing with. I'm curious, as we've kind of talked about really the last two to three years in our nation's history that, you know, things have really 
worsened across our nation. Do you find that you're having these types of healthy conversations with people in your own life? Have, have your friends who do not, you know, have the same race, have they felt comfortable to initiate these conversations or are you finding you're having to initiate them or are you seeing that in your own circles and, you know, in, in one way as a, you know, encouragement to us all that it really can just start with us? Yeah, Julie, that's an excellent question. And um, I'm going to answer it in two ways. I have a number of white friends. There's a few of them that are that actually family members have adopted children from Africa. And the level of sensitivity and awareness, the level of questions that they're asking and seeking and coming back and saying, hey, you know, um, I've had this kind of attitude. How does that fit kind of in the big scheme? Is that kind of a racist attitude? Reading books, seeking education. There's that group of individuals. I'll be honest, I have this other group of, of white friends who, um, well, here's the perfect example. Recently, with one of the shootings that had recently occurred, um, my husband and I really wanted some feedback from them. They have some experience in um, the police environment. And so we wanted to kind of hear from them what were their thoughts. And they basically refused to answer. Um, so I think what we're trying to do is respond to those individuals who are asking the questions and really wanting that kind of deep conversation and input. And on the other side of us, also really trying to gently educate, but recognizing there's a difference in people's willingness and there's a, there's a difference in people's ability to kind of deal with this issue. What's fascinating to me is that they're both, both sets are believers. And so it's kind of funny how, again, I think we go back to taking this out of a bunch of head knowledge about what God says about his creation and really getting to this place where we're acting and we're doing. So again, it comes back down to the heart. We can keep that knowledge of, yes, God created everyone in our brains, but we can actually remove our biases and all of the historical distortions. And we can step into saying, no, God, I'm actually going to love like you. I think one of the things I would feel from the white community is hesitation, fear, uncertainty. What if I say something I shouldn't say? What if I do something I shouldn't do? I don't know what the right answer is. And I think instead of thinking, what is the right answer? I think we need to be willing to ask questions. I think we need to be willing to step up and say, I need to understand, help me understand. So then I can partner with you and whomever else that wants to join this conversation to change this, to redeem this, as you've said, and to do it, you know, one step at a time. I said to our writers in a writer call something that my, you know, cute little precious biracial grandson dealt with. He was in a gas station bathroom. He came out sobbing because there was an F black people written on the wall. My daughter was with him. I wasn't. I would have ripped people's heads off, taken the Sharpie, kicked everybody out of the bathroom, and blackened it out. But my daughter 
talked to him, worked him through it, and at the same time went to the gas station attendant and said, this is unacceptable. Do you know it's there? You, this bathroom has been cleaned and it's been there. It should not be there. It needs to get taken off immediately. And I think in simple ways, why don't we just do that? Why don't we say, if you say those words, if you write those words, if you in any way express that, then it needs to, be, it needs to come down. It needs to be removed. And you need to realize that's not acceptable. But Darlene, that's that step of being courageous. We have to be courageous enough to be able to step out and step into those situations. Whether it's me as a biracial woman that is still learning to navigate and understanding um, how to speak into the, the stories and the, the trials of other races. I mean, this is not just black and white. Um, recently, for everything that's gone on with the pandemic, you know, there has been greater and greater violence and hatred towards Asian Americans as well. This is about brown, black, and yellow. Um, so trying to understand, and it does take this courage and a willingness to really evaluate your own personal beliefs. It forces us, and that takes courage, but it forces us to really look inside and say, why did I say that? Or why do I have this little bit of apprehension every time a black man walks into an elevator with me and it's just him and I? You know, so we have to be willing to do that hard, hard work, that courageous work, to be able to move beyond that. I also think it does take building strong relationships. You have to have a foundation of trust to be able to have these conversations. But here's the irony. A couple that I was talking about unwilling to have kind of this conversation around that shooting, we've known them for over 30 years. So it goes deep. I guess there's this willingness and the ability to be courageous, to think outside themselves, to get kind of self out of the way. And that's where taking off this knowledge of who Christ is and functioning and doing and acting and behaving as he would want us to behave. I think that's that difference. Um, but it's it's very difficult. It's, it's a sensitive topic. And yes, I think um, over the course of the last few years, it's just intensified. And it's scary for the future of my grandchildren's children or your grandchildren's children. Um, what is the world going to be like if we can't start having some of these conversations? And I'm hoping a discussion like we're having today um, maybe spurs in our listeners a willingness to have that conversation. So I think in just, uh, you know, the spirit of an honest conversation, as we're encouraging people to be brave enough to have, I think as I'm hearing you suggest that people ask questions and, you know, have those, those heart to heart, honest moments. And then Darlene, you know, acknowledging that we as white women might face the fear of, will I say the wrong thing? Will I do the wrong thing? I guess I want to hear you say, or hear your thoughts on how do you feel when we ask a question that we don't word it right, or it's, you know, covered in maybe our ignorance, you know, does that help or hurt the situation? You know, Julie, I think it goes back again to the heart. I'm sorry, I keep repeating this, but I really believe that. So Julie, if you come to me and you ask the question that yes, maybe ignorance, but you ask it out of love, I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to explain it. If I receive that same question 
with anger and yeah. um, accusation, that's going to be received very differently. So I think, again, it is a matter of that relationship, us coming together. And even if I don't know you well, if you're willing to sit down with me and just kind of own from the very beginning, you know, I have some questions. They may come out and they may not sound that great, but I don't know how else to raise them. So will you walk with me through this? Um, and that's a very different approach than one that comes out uh, as, again, an accusation or in anger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My hope through all of this, Allison, is that yes. we activate the church. You know, the first church in the book of Acts had every culture, every race, every appearance. You would gather them and you would see every color, every different look, and they all served together. Mm -hmm. And if we as children of God, as believers in Jesus, actually stepped up and said, we're going to look like that again, and we're going to embrace one another, and we're going to be the example of what this is supposed to look like because God created the beauty in the first place. So we need to be the ones to do it. I think we could actually make that change that you're talking about. We could actually turn the tide if we just acted like real Christians. Amen. I, you said it beautifully. Um, it's getting out of our heads and the knowledge that we have, and it's doing. It is being the church, putting our pride and being humble enough to, to say, you know what, I don't have all of the answers. I don't quite know, and it's clumsy, and it feels funny to reach across the color divide, but I'm going to reach across. I'm going to do the little tiny piece that I can do. And every time I have that little catch in my spirit that says, oh, there's a person of color, I'm going to stop myself and ask myself why. I'm going to educate myself about some of these situations. I'm going to reach across that line and develop friendships, and I'm going to learn. And yes, I, I, I pray that we can have this level of unity, but it's going to require the church to really make some transition and be willing to reach out, acknowledge, um, and being willing to have those conversations themselves. Allison, this has been a, I think, a difficult conversation, but a really, really important one. And, you know, truly as women who seek to be strong, we have to have those difficult conversations. So thank you so very much for being willing to join us and delve into this. And I think your wisdom is magnificent and will be well-received. Well, Darlene and Julie, thank you for having me on. And yes, I just uh, appreciate your willingness to have the conversation as well. All right. We're going to close this with what God says about our relationships. And this one comes from Paul. He was speaking to the church at Philippi. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. This comes from Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. 
If you're wanting to kind of continue this conversation or your own personal learning, I would recommend you check out the show notes. We'll also link to several of Allison's articles where she shares more of her personal experiences. As usual, thanks for tuning in to this episode of This Grit and Grace Life. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of This Grit and Grace Life. Make sure you've subscribed and rated and reviewed the show so more friends can find us. You can also share about this episode on your social media or send it to a friend you think it could help. You can find everything we talked about in this episode on our website, gritandgracelife.com, where you'll also find plenty of other articles from other women answering questions you may have.